Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside also, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you at sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, Church of the Redeemer. Uh, good to see so many of you this morning. We continue in a series that we're uh, in this summer talking about uh, just an approach to suffering and affliction, whether it's uh, those that come from the outside or those that begin on the inside. Uh, there's a scene in uh, Braveheart. Uh, which is, you know, one of those great manly movies uh, that we all love, at least the men do, that sums up what we're trying to do in this series this summer. If you remember the scene, and as I describe it to you, you probably will, the armies of Scotland are aligned against the armies of England, but fear begins to get the best of the men, and the ranks begin to dissipate. They begin to leave. They're outnumbered. They're outgunned. They would rather shrink back to their farms and go about their lives, at least without the threat of war. And then William Wallace shows up with his men, and he rides out uh, and and begins to rally them to the fight. And then, as uh, the parley begins to happen, um, all of the negotiating that takes place in the middle of the field, he uh, looks at his guys, and he begins to ride out to meet with the English nobles. And one of his generals asks him, where are you going? Do you remember this? And he says... I'm going to pick a fight. Now this is the call, I think, upon each of our lives, to pick a fight, to refuse comfort and security and safety and 
Instead, to pick a fight with evil and injustice. That's what Christians do. Listen, when plague hits the city and everyone else leaves for fear of being infected, we stay and we risk our own health to take care of the sick. When guests that we invite into our gatherings slaughter the people we love, we choose forgiveness and love instead of hate, which is the hard thing. That's what Christians have always done. Christians run towards danger, not away from it. We always have. And so Christianity is not an escape from a life of hardship and sadness and loss. It's not an escape from those things. I've said this over and over again. It actually is the occasion for it because to be a Christian means, as we saw in Luke's gospel, you take up your cross and you follow Jesus. And what does it mean to take up your cross but that you pick a fight with evil and injustice wherever you find it, knowing that it's going to mean trouble. You choose to live with more sadness, more heartbreak, not less. And we're entering into a phase as a church that will be very costly for all of us. We're picking a fight. We're choosing to do the hard thing for the sake of the gospel in our city because we believe it's the only way to move the mission forward. And so we're sending out some from among us to go to another part of the city And we still need people to go to plant that new church. And don't think that if you stay, you're choosing the easier road because we're also moving towards two services in the fall, which will be hard uh, because it will mean a whole lot of work for me and the other people up here on stage. But listen, it will mean a whole lot more work for all of us. Everybody's got to chip in. And so we we are engaging in the hard thing. We're picking a fight. And the metaphor that Hebrews 12 here, if you are familiar with this scripture, uses uh, to describe this for us as a race. Do you see that, verse 1 of chapter 12? We're running a race. Now, I've run two half marathons in my life, and I have to be honest with you, both of them very unsuccessfully. In fact, to say I've run two half marathons would really probably be stretching the truth just a little bit, because in both I finished severely cramping and barely made it across the finish line. But I did learn this. There's, one, there's only one way to run a race like that. Here's what you have to do. You have to like look months in advance and you circle the date of the race on the calendar and then you count back like 10 or maybe 12 weeks and begin a training program because the race uh, may be 12 weeks away, but if you're going to be able to run on the day of the race, you've got to hit the gym today. You can't wait until one week out. By then it's too late. So here's what we're doing. There's a race that we're called to run. We're hitting the gym. That's the purpose of this series. We need a theology of suffering, a theology of, 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 of the things that happen to us because we pick a fight or the things that happen to us just because we live in a fallen world that is broken and sin ruins things. And the consequence of that is that no matter who you are, no matter how young or old you are, life will be full of these kinds of painful things. And we need a theology to help us in it. Because if you wait until you're in the middle of a really, really hard time to begin to think about these things, it's too late. Just like the person who waits until the week before to train for the race. The pain is too deep to do good thinking most times. You have to do good thinking before you get into the middle of it. And this passage here in Hebrews 12 is really helpful. It's really helpful for this work we're trying to do. Because we're told here that the problem is this, that it's hard to run and not get weary and want to quit. And so this is a theme of endurance here that... The writer of the Hebrews is really fleshing out for us. How do you run and not grow weary? Look at verse 2. He says, let us run with endurance, with endurance, the race that is set before us. He says, but in order to run with endurance, you have to run with courage. That's the argument that I'm going to make this morning at least. 
Because when you lose courage, when you become what Hebrews calls faint-hearted later here in in verses 3 and 4, you eventually wear out. So the real problem in suffering, in painful circumstances, is that it erodes your confidence in God, your confidence in the gospel, and as that confidence begins to erode, the consequences is that you lose your energy to keep going. That's, that's the problem he's trying to solve here in these verses. And so, what I want us to see from these, ver- these, these few verses here is just this. To, grow, to not grow weary in the middle of suffering, here's what you have to do. You have to first know where the painful thing you're experiencing comes from. Where does your suffering come from? Not only that, you also have to know what it's doing to you. So you have to know the source and you have to know the effect. You have to know where it comes from and what it's doing to you. And only then, when you know those two things, will you know how to respond in the right way. That's really what this passage is about, okay? Know where it comes from, know what it's doing in you, and if you know those two things, then you'll have all of the energy and the courage that you need to respond in the right way. So let's talk about these things this morning, beginning just here. First, in order to keep your courage and not grow weary, you have to know where your suffering comes from. You have to know the source. And in order to do that, in order to really answer that question, I have to distinguish between what is true of the person who believes and what is true of the person who doesn't believe, because it's very different. Okay, so if you're here and you're not a Christian, which we're glad you're here. In other words, you've not humbled yourself before God in repentance and faith. Then what the Bible would say is that God is your sovereign. He's your judge. But here's the thing. This is all about a father and his children, which would have made a great Father's Day message, wouldn't it? One week too late. Whoever plans this sermon stuff doesn't think very well. It's me, by the way. But this is all about a father with his children. But if you're here and you're not a Christian... I want to say this as kindly as I can, but, but the Bible teaches a person who's not a Christian is not a child of God. They're the enemy of God. Therefore, the source of your suffering is the righteous anger of an offended king. Okay, now, be careful. By that, I don't mean that Hurricane Katrina was God's judgment on the city of New Orleans for all of the wickedness that takes place on Bourbon Street. I happen to like Bourbon Street. I've been there a few times, okay? It's kind of fun. Nor do I mean that AIDS was a plague sent by God to afflict the homosexual community. Those things, that's ridiculous. Okay, Don't forget the lessons of the book of Job that we looked at last week. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquity or according to our righteousness. There's never a one-to-one correlation. If you're in a hard time, it doesn't mean that you've necessarily done something wrong. But there's a general principle here. And it's that there's always mystery. There's always mystery with the way God works in these things. But here's the thing I want you to see. If you're not a Christian, not only is there mystery, there's always mercy. Because what the Bible teaches us is that God is patient. He's angry at sin, but he's slow in his anger because this is a beautiful verse. 2 Peter 3.9, he doesn't wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Isn't that great? He is hopeful, we might say. I think that's a fair way of representing that verse. And so he uses painful circumstances to wake us up from the anesthesia of sin. As C.S. Lewis put it, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. Anybody know the rest of this quote? It's pretty famous. But he shouts to us in our pain. Suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That was Lewis's words. That is, God uses things like this in our lives to teach us that this world is passing away, that there's no such thing as happiness apart from him, and that all of the hopes besides hoping in him are senseless. Now, if you're here, again, I'm talking to non-Christians. 
The other thing I want to say to you this morning is this, is that there's no real comfort in this, however, because even though there's mercy, and it's an extended mercy, it's a mercy that goes on for a long time, if you're not a Christian, there is the reality that one day, there's a day that is coming where that mercy will come to an end. Where God will judge wickedness and condemn it. And if you do not turn to Jesus, you will meet him as a judge on that day. Now, this is much different, however, for a Christian. Okay, if you're a Christian, then as Hebrews puts it, in whatever's happening in your life, and particularly in the hard things that might be happening in your life, the pain and the affliction and the suffering that's come to you for whatever reason, look here at these verses and see the truth. Very different, very different for Christians this morning. Because what Hebrews says is that in whatever God is doing in your life, and which, by the way, whatever's happening in your life, it's God's doing. So in whatever he's doing in you, he's addressing you as sons. Look, verse 7. God is treating you as sons. Which means, of course, that he is a father. And so if you're not a Christian, you might ask, why are these bad things happening to me? And according to Christianity... Uh, the answer would be something like it's because you've offended your sovereign, but he's merciful and he's trying to wake you up and lead you to repentance. That's the, that's the answer Christianity would give. But if you are a Christian, you ask the same question. Why am I suffering like this? What's, what's the purpose? What's the reason for all of this stuff that's happening to me? And the answer is much more straightforward and it's just that it's because you are a son. Look at verse 7. What son is there? whom his father does not discipline. And, verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Where does your suffering come from? It comes from the love of your father. And so the psalmist sings, and it's one of these amazing verses in the psalms. Listen to these words of the psalmist. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. All. All the paths of the Lord. Not some All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. So if you've been through Disciple by Grace, which is a discipleship tool we use in our church, you probably remember this question. Uh, It's in, I think, the fourth fourth, um, lesson in that series of lessons. We just ask at the very beginning of the lesson, we say, is God angry at you when you sin? Now, I used to think the answer to that question was, of course he is. Because I used to think God was always angry at me. So when I sin, of course he's angry at me. My, I tell people my, my, um, my image of the God, my relationship with him growing up was like he was playing a game of whack-a-mole with me. Anybody remember that old game where you had a little paddle and you waited for that thing to stick its head out of the hole and you just, just, you're cracking it as hard as you can. That was who God was to me. So of course he was angry at me. But then the gospel began to dawn on my life, and I, I thought, you know, the, the question is, God angry at you when you sin? And I thought the answer was no. I was a young man at the time. I've had uh, some child-rearing years to go through uh, since then, and now I know that the answer is, yes, of course God is angry at me, but his anger is the anger of a loving father. See, there's a difference between the anger of an offended sovereign and the anger of... Uh, a grieving father. I get angry at my children, they'll tell you if you ask them, but my anger is never separated from my love for them. In fact, it's part of my love for them. I can't love them and not be angry when they disobey me and get themselves into trouble. That's not loving. It is a parent's job, and by the way, parents, maybe, maybe it's a parent's job to bring suffering into the lives of their kids as a consequence of wrong behavior. We know that, right? Parents, are we together on that? That's our job. To bring suffering into their lives. 
Why are you laughing? I'm being serious. It's the job of a parent to do that. Now, if you know that it is your job as a parent for the good of your child to bring suffering into their life as a consequence of wrong behavior, then why do you question it when God does it to you? Parents do this because they love their children. You ruin kids if you keep them from suffering. It produces negative character qualities in them. And so don't think that it's any different in God's dealing with you. And we, I be honest, we have a real obstacle to this in our entitlement culture today. I mean, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it from him, right? Now, that is wisdom according to the Bible, but it is not wisdom. It is blasphemy in American society today. But the Bible would say that God is not responsible for our personal happiness. It's far more important that we become people of deep character, that in this case, are able to do the hard thing and not grow weary or faint-hearted. The most loving thing, in other words, that God can do is to do whatever it takes to fill us with the love and joy and the peace and the patience that we need because becoming that kind of person is the key to finding happiness in life. See, whether my son makes the baseball team or not is not really, uh, it's not really that important. It really has very little impact on the rest of my life or his. But, but him learning to deal with failure through the process, that's the big deal. Children don't really believe that love and discipline uh, go together. <laughs> and increasingly so today. But all parents know they do. Children are wont to pity themselves and feel sorry for themselves when their parents cause suffering in their life and accuse their parents of being harsh or of wrongdoing when they tell them no. But parents say no to their kids because they have a burning passion to make them great people. And Hebrews is saying, I want you to act and think like adults, not like children, about the way God deals with you. See, I'm making an argument that if your faith, uh, excuse me, that if your faith is in Christ, then all of the good things that happen to you And all of the bad things that happen to you, they both come from the same source, God's love for you as a father. And there are two gospel truths, very quickly, here at the beginning, the gospel at the beginning today and not at the end, uh, that that support my argument. The first is that that Jesus, I'm just going to, bullet points, Jesus is our propitiation according to the Bible. It's a big theological word, but let me explain very quickly. There's a difference between experiencing the anger of an offended judge and the anger of a loving father. Uh, An angry judge is scary. An angry father is comforting. And the reason that we can be sure that our suffering comes from God's love, of which his anger is a part, is because his condemning wrath, Romans 1.8, against our sin was dealt with at the cross. Right? This is what we believe as Christians. So according to the Bible, Jesus is our propitiation. That means that the wrath of God, he is our covering, the wrath of God fell upon him. And what that means is is it doesn't mean that God is not angry with us, but it means that his anger is now the anger of a loving father, which means that Romans 8 is right, that his anger isn't separate from his love for us. But not only is there a gospel truth of Jesus being our propitiation, but the second gospel truth is that as a result of Jesus' work for us, we've not only been forgiven... We've not only been made righteous, we've not only been cleansed of our sins, but here's the great and glorious truth of the gospel. What the scriptures say over and over again is that we've been adopted into his family as sons. And these two gospel truths give you incredible resources 
Nothing can separate you from his love because he is your propitiation and because you are now his son. Nothing can separate you from his love, from the source of his love. That means nothing comes into your life that isn't sent in love. Nothing. So take heart. Now let me apply this before I move on. If you want to know, if you want to test your grasp of the things I'm trying to describe here, the source of your suffering being the Father's love, ask yourself this question. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in the book that I've referenced over and over again, uh, Spiritual Depressions, he says, he asks this question, he says, do you thank God for the things that have gone against you? Was anybody's response, if you're a person of faith, was anybody's response this week at the Supreme Court's uh, ruling to say, thank you, God, for that? Do you thank God for the things that go against you? Are you thankful or are you bitter about the hard times you've had to walk through? Do you appreciate them, even rejoice in them, or do you despise them? How do you talk about these kinds of events in your life? Do you know how the psalmist did? Listen to Psalm 119, 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted. (laughs) It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Can you say that? Only the person who knows where their suffering comes from is able to talk like that. So in order to keep your courage and not grow weary, you have to know where your suffering comes from. But you also need to know what it is that it's doing in you. You need to know the effect. And it's here, if you look down in this, in this chapter to verses 10 and 11, where the Hebrews writer says, For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness for The moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now the word at the end of verse 11 there, trained by it, is the word gymnasium. Uh, And the word actually means, literally, it literally means to be stripped naked. uh, Because, of course, when the ancient Greeks exercised, or when they uh, competed in athletic events, they did so in the nude. I mean, let's be honest, it's really not that much different today. Right? Go to Gold's Gym sometime. I mean, we're like a couple strips of clothing away from that. But it's a helpful metaphor. Right? Why does a person go to the gym? Typically, it's because they're out of shape. They've put on a few too many pounds. You go to the gym because you're not healthy and you want to be, right? Or because you're healthy and you want to stay that way. But do you see the way the Hebrews uh, writer's describing this? Down in verse 12, he says, Lift up your droopy hands and strengthen your weak knees so that what is lame may be not, may be." May, be put out of, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. He's using these images of a lack of physical health to describe our spiritual lack of health and weakness. Drooping hams means flabbiness. That's really what it, what it, what it refers to. Weak knees is literally a Greek word. It's, it's the transliterated word of paralysis. So he's saying we're all spiritually out of joint. We don't have the strength we need to endure without giving up. Our, our, our joints don't work right. We're too flabby to do this. So what do you do? What's the solution? You have to go to the gym. You have to go into training. And suffering, we're told here, is God's gymnasium. Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I've referred to, he was a doctor before he was a pastor. He describes this so well. He says, here's what's really happening in this image. He says that that in suffering, God strips us naked, (laughs) which is frightening. Uh, But he does this so that he can have a really good look at us, so that he can see the parts of, of our lives that are otherwise hidden beneath clothes. He can find the flaws in the real areas of weakness. He can have a thorough examination of us. And then he comes up with an exercise program to address the specific concerns. So what he says is, he says, when hard things begin to happen, 
to you, instead of saying, what's this? What in the world's happening? What you have to say is, oh, man, I'm in the gym. God's taking me to the gym. Now, I know I've been in the gym. Uh, I'm, I'm old enough uh, to, to know it the next day. Uh, because, you know, when I wake up the next morning, I'm sore. That's how you know you've had a really good workout, right? When there's pain, when it's hard, when you wake up with spiritual soreness, what you're supposed to think is, I'm in training. And it's never just a general training. It's always something specific, some physical therapy approach that's designed to solve whatever problem it is that he found upon his examination. If there's an injury to the shoulder, you don't do physical therapy on your knee. You do shoulder exercises to strengthen the shoulder and the areas around it. And this is what God is doing. And so suffering is our training program to make us spiritually healthy and strong. It's hard for the moment, sure, but do you see the promise in these verses? Verse 11, For the moment, discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What happens if you go to the gym and keep at it? You get stronger. What happens if you go through a time of suffering and you submit to it? You get the peaceable fruits of righteousness. You become a better person, more humble, more patient, more joyful. Listen to James when he says, Count it joy, brothers, when you meet with trials. For you know that the testing of your faith, he goes on to say, produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may become perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What happens to a lump of coal that is put under an enormous amount of pressure? You know what I always think of? This is, I always think of the Superman. Do you remember the old cheesy Superman movies when he took a lump of coal in his hand? And he crushed it. What came out? A diamond. Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy us. That is being cast away from God. He took that for us on the cross. He didn't suffer so that we wouldn't suffer. Please listen. He suffered to redeem all of our suffering. So that all suffering would now do in us is make us great and beautiful. Jesus didn't suffer so that we wouldn't suffer, but so that when we suffer, we'd be like him. Verse 11, he disciplines us for our good that we might share his holiness. Holiness is better than happiness. If you believe that, then you'll embrace whatever hard thing comes into your life and even choose it sometimes. If you don't believe it, if you prefer happiness, then you'll run away as soon as things start to get hard. But pay attention to the road signs as you're running away from the hard thing God has brought into your life because that road you're on away from suffering is the broad road that leads to destruction. Strive for holiness, Hebrews says, verse 14, without which no one will see the Lord. Now let me apply this. Also, before I move on to the last point, and let me give you one piece of advice about how to do this, and it's, and it's just this. You have to view your life, all of your life, through a wide-angle lens. You see verse 11, the text says, for the moment. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, but later. See, sometimes the moment's really hard. But the trick is you have to get outside of the moment and keep an eye on the big picture. There's a huge, there's a huge colossal, eternal thing God's doing in every single one of us. And this thing... You know, whatever it is that you're in in the moment, it's not the end of the story. But we get so zeroed in on the moment, we can't see past it. We get so panicked about what God is doing right now in this moment that we forget it's just part of a larger story that promises good to us in the end. There's a story God is writing, and the painful moments are part of it. But they're only a moment. There's still a lot to come. There's still a lot more on the other side for God to do. So view life through a wide-angle lens. Now... We need to come to a close. So in order to keep your courage and not grow weary, you have to know where your suffering comes from. It comes from your Father's love, 
You have to also know what, what it's doing in you, that it's making you holy, it's making you spiritually strong. The text says it's for our good. It's good to go to the gym, right? It's really good to go to the gym. I know this. I'm now, this is a sad thing for me. I'm now at the age where it hurts more when I don't go than when I do go. That is really upsetting, okay? I don't know if anybody else is with me. It hurts more to not go because it's good. Your body needs the exercise. And so to know that the source of all the hard things in your life is God's love and that the effect is to make you more beautiful, that gives us courage. And by the way, that's why you should believe. You're going to go through things like this with or without these resources. You're much better off with them. And so Christian, don't lose heart. Don't be afraid. As John Piper somewhat provocatively put it, don't waste your cancer. Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your unemployment. Whatever it is, don't waste it. My son, Hebrews 12.5 says, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. Quoting Proverbs 3.11 and 12, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, down in verse 15. Do you see that? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Discipline brings grace, but don't miss it, he says. Make sure you don't miss out on the opportunity of this thing God's doing in your life, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. So whether or not you benefit from the hard times, depends on how you respond. You have to respond right. Kids, listen. A child's flourishing is dependent upon how they respond to their parents' discipline. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, according to Proverbs. But whoever hates reproof, I love the way... Whoever hates reproof is stupid. Yes, that's in the Bible. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates reproof is stupid. And so let's finish with just this. There's a number of wrong responses that this text gives us. It says first that we're not to despise discipline. Do you see that verse 5? My son, do not regard lightly. That word means to fail to pay attention or to not take seriously, to undervalue God's working in your life in this way. This is the fool, according to the book of Proverbs, who's just fine on his own. He's got things figured out. He doesn't need anyone telling him what to do. Teenagers, listen, this is the temptation to ignore your parents' rules because you think, in all of your wisdom, they're too restrictive. You're a fool if you do that. Your parents love you and are trying to protect you, and usually, at least this is my experience, it goes really bad when you step outside of their authority and discipline. But the person who despises God's discipline thumbs their nose at his rules. They disregard the means of grace because, of course, they don't need them. They're doing fine all by themselves. They've got it all figured out. And it's, this is terribly naive. That's the problem. It's terribly naive. If you want a metaphor, this is the person who's 100 pounds overweight but shows up to run the half marathon having done no training. Who needs training? I'm the best athlete here. Really. Good luck. We need to be fathered. That's the point. That's the point of this passage. Children need to be fathered. Because foolishness is bound up in their hearts and will get them into all kinds of trouble unless they're fathered. But it's the same for adults too. Adults need to be fathered too. And if suffering is discipline, and if discipline is absolutely necessary for our good, then we should not despise it. We should be grateful. We should embrace it. We should rejoice. We should give thanks. You see, this is a temptation when you forget the goal, when you forget the effect of what it's doing. But the second wrong response, we're told, he says, not only don't disregard, he says, but don't faint faint either. You see that verse 5? Don't faint. Don't become discouraged. Don't give up. Don't feel hopeless. My son, don't, don't regard the discipline of the Lord, but don't be weary. 
And the danger here is cynicism. You lose heart. You lose your courage. You melt down. Why is this happening to me? God, why are you doing this to me? This is so unfair. I don't understand. And you just completely begin to fall apart. And this is the temptation when you forget where your suffering comes from. That God is patient and loving a father, not an angry judge. And it gets worse. This actually can morph into what he begins to talk about down at the bottom of the passage where he says, and don't become bitter either. Don't become bitter. Don't let a root of bitterness grow up because of God's discipline. See to it, verse 15, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up into defiles. Psychologists and philosophers have a name for this. It's the, the French word for resentment. James David Hunter, he writes this. He says, this, this, this bitterness is grounded in a narrative of injury or at least perceived injury, a strong belief that one has, has been or is being wronged, and the root of this is a sense of entitlement that the person holds. In other words, if you become bitter when these bad things start to happen to you, if you're angry about how your life is going or, or, or has gone, it's because you've been wrong. You, you feel, you know, I don't deserve this. I've been wrong. God, you're wrong in doing this. I deserve better than what you're doing. And James David Hunter goes on to say that what happens over time to this person is that the perceived injustice that they've experienced becomes central to their identity. The person begins to define themselves as a victim. I've been, she's been wrong, right? And because she's been wrong, she's more likely to accuse and blame and vilify others and seek revenge against whoever's responsible. And what happens is, is the list becomes longer and longer and longer as time goes on of the people who've been responsible. It's called a root of bitterness because it is subterranean, but it's always springing up out of the heart in subtle ways, in conversation and tone. But the problem is pride. A bitter person is bitter because they're grieving their impotence, like the mother who has turned mother-in-law, who was once so powerfully in control of her children, but now they are married and must take the back seat to the spouse. So that now, shucked of all power, she is left only to become bitter and too often to take it out on the son or the daughter-in-law. A bitter person's life becomes a campaign of negativity and accusation that's really just a desperate play to regain power. See, if you forget where your suffering comes from, you'll be weary, or worse, you'll become bitter. If you forget what it's designed by God to do and accomplish in your life, you'll despise it. Both of these people fail to obtain the grace of God. They waste their suffering. Instead, he would say, submit joyfully to whatever God is doing to you. And let me conclude with just one more piece of advice. It's very clear how the Hebrews writer expects that we do this work in our hearts. Look at the beginning of the passage. He says, run with endurance, verse 1, looking to Jesus, verse 2. Consider him so that you may not grow weary. Some older translations put it, fixing your eyes on Jesus. And that better gets at what the text is saying. How do you deal with your suffering? It's dependent upon your focus. What are you fixated on? Where are you focused? Are you focused on the pain? When you go to dinner with friends, what's the subject of conversation? Is it the pain of your past? Are you stuck back there? See, the word here literally means look away to Jesus. You have to take your eyes off of yourself. You have to stop thinking about you or, or the thing that's happened to you, that self-pity, you have to look away to him. Look away to his love, to his endurance for you. That's the only way to endure. If you're fainting, if you're bitter, it's because you've turned in on yourself. All you can see is the pain. All your focus is on you, your hurt, your disappointment, what other people have done to you. You need to look away. You need to worship. That's the only solution. There's an old hymn from the Gatsby Hymnal uh, that has these words. And I want to close with them. Uh, By crosses I'll scourge them for sin, and flowing from wrath 
Excuse me, let me start over. I want to get this right. By crosses, I'll scourge them for sin. Not flowing from wrath, but in love. Yet while they, the furnace, are in, the strength of my grace they shall prove. And when at my footstool at last they come with a suppliant knee, their sorrowful eyes they shall cast and look for salvation to me. Look to him. That's the solution to our endurance. And so let's pray and ask that he would give us grace to do just that this morning as we close with these few songs. Father, thank you that you are such a good and loving father to us. In our sin, we, uh, are, we protest and we fight against the very loving of us that you try to do. We are rebellious children who are intent on being wise in our own eyes. And so we, in our arrogance and pride and foolishness, really believe that we know better than you how our lives should go. So instead of gratefully, humbly receiving whatever circumstances you bring into our lives that are ultimately for our good, though they be painful in the moment. We kick and we scream and we fall upon the floor in a temper tantrum like a two-year-old. Forgive us. We have much work to do in repentance. And so even as we sing in these moments left to us in this service, would you lead us by the Spirit? Give us the graces, the gifts of faith and repentance that we might learn the secret of being content in all circumstances, knowing where our suffering comes from, knowing the good things it's doing in us, that we might not despise or grow weary or grow bitter, but that we might submit and endure, and in doing so, bring glory to your name. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If the, if the, uh, the, the two of the songs put side by side is confusing to you, uh, it's because there's something very complex that happens in the heart of people by, of faith. And that is in the sense that we don't shy away from, uh, from the pain of the things that often come into our lives. We don't fail to grieve them. We are people of, uh, of a deep emotional honesty. But at the same time, the scripture says, don't, we're not allowed to wallow in our sadness as if those who have no hope. And so it's fitting that even in, the, in crying out and saying, God, we're trusting in you through this hard thing. Uh, the, the peppiness, if you, would, if you would, of that last song is a sense of, we turn to our hearts and we say, why, oh Lord, why should our hearts be sad? This is my Father's world. Right? Whatever happened this week, this is our Father's world. And so whatever it is that comes into our life, our hearts can find a home in the great love that God has for us. And that's the promise of this benediction. So one last time as you're sent out now, receive these words as the very promise of your Father. Uh, that wherever you go, whatever it is you go from this place into, He sends you with the promise of His love with the promise of his presence, with the promise of the power of his spirit uh, to transform and redeem your suffering into something that will make you beautiful and that will bring him glory. What a great promise to receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in his peace.